0: Well, hello again, Memphis, and welcome to Storyboard 30, taken right out of the pages of the monthly print journal, Storyboard Memphis. We bring Memphis personalities and shapers right here into the WYPL studios for 30 minutes of in-depth conversation to hear about their passions, their initiatives, or to talk a little bit about what makes Memphis Memphis. As always, I am your host, Mark Fleischer, publisher of Storyboard Memphis. And I will be with you for the next half an hour of Storyboard 30. My two guests today, John Zena, who's the director of Memphis-Shelby County Division and Planning Development. Rashawn Austin, president and CEO of The Works, Inc. And we are here to talk about today the good old Memphis 3.0, which we've been talking about quite a bit over the last... Six, seven, eight months. And if we include the <laughs> entire
1: two, two and a half years, <laughs> <laughs> our entire planning process.
0: Yeah. We go back to what, 2016. I thought we'd start with the basics. What is 3.0? And I know we have talked about this quite a bit, but what is the Memphis 3.0 plan? John, I'll start with you.
2: Let's take it at the basics. Yeah. It's a comprehensive plan that guides physical development of the city over the next 20 years and beyond perhaps Mm -hmm. and when we say physical development what we mean is land use buildings Uh, we mean transportation how uh, buildings and neighborhoods uh, in different districts of the city are connected to one another but we also look at and this is the comprehensive part of it we look at how land use and transportation affects or is affected by other related issues like the provision of civic space, housing and housing options, uh, economic development, workforce development, a number of different topics that ultimately have some type of connectivity with the concept of land use, the places that we build, the places that we inhabit as a city across Memphis. The reason why we have taken on a comprehensive plan, the reason why we took on Memphis 3.0, is the last time we did this as a city was 1981. It was certainly a far different time in 1981. We thought about our city in different ways. Our city was a completely different size and shape than as it is today. It was about half the size. Uh, And the way that we thought about our plan for physical development then was that the best way to grow our city would be to allow residential subdivisions, uh, suburban sprawl, further and further that we could annex into the city so that we were able to maintain our tax base well we maintained but we grew with respect to our land area and ultimately our responsibilities associated with our land area police fire sewer roads schools you name it we're turning the page now thinking about how we grow into the next 20 years into the next century and that's what memphis 3.0 is about
0: with Storyboard, we, we went back and we revisited almost 100 years ago the, the 1924 plan. <laughs> Just to give readers kind of a, a sense or a context of what a city plan is for, very interesting. In 1924, most of the conversation was around uh, transportation and infrastructure. So in other words, there was in the, before 1924, there was really not any zoning. One of the big topics of conversation in, the, in looking at the 1924 plan was, with regard to transportation, was street widening. So that's something very tangible that the average person can think about. Like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. If if this is nineteen the early 1920s, we know the automobile is coming. We need to widen the streets, <laughs> right?
1: But who was that coming for in 1924? And so it was the people who had money who could afford to purchase the automobile. And so they were accommodating themselves in 1924. And not necessarily the workers, although they may have been accommodating them somewhat on the trolley or public transportation so that the workers could get to their homes or to their businesses. Yeah. And so kind of touching on John in the 1981 plan, he said it in a nice land use way. <laughs> but we were planning for white flight and spa in 1981.
0: Even the, the groundwork was laid in the 20s. Even and reinforced in the 1950s with all the federal funds coming with regard to
1: the post-war boom,
0: the post-war boom, mm-hmm. all the federal funding for for transportation, the highway system, urban renewal, a bad word. Right. The re, one of the reasons we touched on the 1924 plan um, and we're going to touch on the 1950, the, the various plans that came out in the 50s was the fact that it was all car centric.
1: Very car centric. Right. Car-centric.
0: right. And Rashawn, to your point, it was assuming, you know, you look at these plans, and the, and the assumption is, well, everyone's going to have an automobile; it's going to be a one-to-one ratio for every person. There's going to be an automobile. That mm-hmm. seems like the assumption in those times, which was not true. But you're right; we had there the was no
1: concern for people of who were vulnerable and people of color. Right. It was about those who could afford the automobiles and who made the automobiles. I always say that the automobile industry has the greatest marketing team or they have the greatest marketing teams of all time because okay. they convinced us all that the car was most important and they did a great job in the 1950s with the interstate across the especially, country.
0: Especially, especially in the 1950s, yeah. So here we are and I want to dig deeper into the plan itself in a moment, but here we are in when this airs, it'll be June 30th. We have another city council um, session coming up July 2nd. The plan has been put on hold three times, I believe.
1: I've lost count. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And again, we'll dig into some of the reasons why it's been put on hold uh, or that council has put it on hold. And when I say put on hold, they have held their vote. Um, And it's been was approved by the Land Use Control Board back in February. February. It has you know, gotten the full endorsement from the mayor and, and various groups, obviously. Before we dig back into the plan itself for a moment, I want to revisit the fact that, it, that council had put it on hold. What does that mean? And in, in, in other words, John, we've talked about the difference between approving the plan versus adopting the plan. So the plan has been adopted by land use. It has not yet been adopted by council. So what is the adoption? What does that mean for the future?
2: Tennessee law gives us the guide for what adopting a plan looks like, what it means. And that's not uncommon. Most states have some type of planning enabling law uh, on their books. Uh, Some states, in fact, even require municipalities within their state to conduct comprehensive plans on a regular basis. Tennessee does not require us, but the Tennessee state law says, cities, if you are going to do a plan, this is how you adopt it. Uh, It is the duty and function of the Planning Commission, to use the words from state code, to prepare and adopt the general plan for physical development of a municipality. So we've achieved a very significant Uh, outcome already in having our planning commission, our land use control board, adopt the plan back in February. We have achieved what the state law tells us is general plan adoption. Uh, And that's a big deal. Why is that a big deal? Again, the last time we did this was back in 1981. So it's been nearly 40 years since our city put together a vision for how chose to grow, it was going to guide growth in in the long term. So that's that's a big step uh, for us. And, and since February, we've been working to implement the plan through not only our Office of Planning and Development, which handles our land use and zoning matters, but also through our work with multiple divisions and agencies of city government, with community groups like Roshan's to... Uh, see the recommendations of the plan uh, carried out in the short term and then prepare for how we're going to carry them out in the medium and long term as well. So the next step in the state law is that if the planning commission chooses to transmit the plan to the legislative body, the city council, they may do so. And they did. So back in March, we presented the plan and we presented the the Planning Commission's recommendation to the council that they adopt it. Why would they adopt it? So the state law goes on to tell us that the, the legislative body, the city council, may adopt the plan by ordinance so that their decisions related to land use are consistent with the plan. That's a big step. There's a reason why we continued on the path beyond the Planning Commission of course, Memphis 2000, which is the 1981 plan, was adopted by the city council. So there's some precedent set there that we want to continue to to meet and and continue in in that in that vein. But also, there are land use decisions made every two weeks by the mm-hmm. city council. There are developers who make applications to essentially vary from the zoning. That is why developers come before uh, the city council every two weeks. And what we're saying is if you're going to do that, if you're going to vary from the zoning, there ought to be a guide to say, okay, we're okay with you doing that as long as you meet this bar. And this bar being the provisions of the plan, the vision of the comprehensive plan. And so what we wanna be able to do is make sure that the decisions of the council are guided by that and consistent with that, which is the word straight out of state law. And in fact, what we've done uh, within Memphis 3.0, because the state law doesn't really tell us, well, what does consistency mean, we've put some guidelines in there to say when we say consistency, we mean related to the descriptions of the land use types that are in the plan, related to the degrees of change that are in the plan. So the way that we're interpreting consistency is very much Homegrown to Memphis, very much homegrown to the way that we put together the plan as a community. So that's ultimately why we're pursuing adoption by the city council and what it means for the city council to adopt it. If they said, you know, we're not really interested in adopting it, it's still the general plan of the city of Memphis.
1: We kind of end up, as John was talking, I thought of the animated movie Up. And so, you know, imagine every two weeks we have this little house and this person that's been in it and is surrounded by thirty-story towers, it's in, something is inconsistent. There's this little house in between thirty-story towers, and so the city council has the ability every two weeks to make up like decisions based on the developer's uh, goal to vary from the plan.
0: So that's that's one of the things I want to talk about too. Is I'm a developer. Well, there's a, there's a good one actually that's on the uh, that's in application process right now in Cooper Young on um, Young and New York. And I believe that corner is has traditionally been zoned commercial, and the applicant is seeking a variance to rezone it residential and put up, I think they're looking to put up a couple-story um, apartment or condos. So just using that as, say, uh, a current example, I'm the developer. What does it mean to me? What does consistency mean to me as the developer? Why? What is... Because we have, we have the plan, we have the land use, we have zoning, maybe even landmarks to deal with, perhaps. So what is what does that mean to me as the developer, consistency?
2: Well, <laughs> for one thing, and so in today's world, prior to a plan, in that world... When a developer brings an application for uh, approval by the lan- the Use Control Board and the City Council, y- you know, th- they take on a risk. They take on the risk that they're investing in preparing this application, investing in the representatives, investing in the technical help, the architects, the engineers, whatever the, the case may be, to prepare an application that... They think gives them the best chance of getting approval, um, but it is still very much a an open question. It is still very much a, an open decision. So there's a level of risk there, which I think Rashawn and I will probably uh, revisit uh, later in this discussion. Why risk is is so important to understand with respect to. Uh, the value of having a plan, but on the the other side you have the community, and the community takes on some risk too when there isn't a set of there isn't a transparent guide for what the sort of idea of the community would be from a land use perspective. So you have some some opposing forces here, potentially a fo- opposing force where the developer is bringing something that he or she not only thinks will make a profit for them but also he or she thinks that will positively impact the community and then you have the community who has perhaps other ideas on what positively impacts the community and they probably care a lot less about the developer's potential profit (laughs) and then you have us the planners we have a responsibility not only to take in the application of anyone who wants to bring an application before Lineage Control Board and City Council, but we have, an oper- we have a responsibility to counsel them on uh, what is the best uh, application for that site. And again, we're trying to balance those objectives of seeing development take place and seeing development that is compatible with the surrounding community. And we have things like the zoning code to help us. But again, remember, the very essence of why we're, we're doing this is a developer's trying to vary from the zoning That's code right. in some way. So what's yeah. our guide? So here's what a, what consistency means to the developer from all of those perspectives. It means that they have a guide to look at on day one. Before they even walk into our office, before they even talk to the community, they can flip to page 100 of the plan and see that this area is recommended for you know one land use type or another and this is kind of what we're talking about with respect to what we want to see in that area and so when they come into the office they can say okay well we see that the recommended land use is this uh we kind of had something else in mind
1: <laughs> we so- want to do a farm yeah we want to it's do- recommended <laughs> residential but we rather do a farm right. Right. or a graveyard yeah. because we just want to vary
2: so, so we as staff now have a tool that they also have that we can help counsel them to get to a good place. And then step three, the community. The community has that same guide. The community has that same set of guidelines, that same set of uh, illustrative photographs to say, okay, well, this is what we're trying to accomplish here. How does your proposal meet that? Mm-hmm. So now we're going from a place where we have no resources to come to a hopefully a mutual conclusion to a very clear resource that helps us all come to a mutual conclusion that ultimately helps meet that goal of, yes, we're seeing growth in our community, but we're seeing it in a way that's compatible with the surrounding neighborhood.
0: If you're just tuning in, we are um, sitting with Director Memphis Shelby County and Division of Planning and Development John Zena, Rashawn Austin, President and CEO of The Works, you're listening to FM 89.3 WYPL. This is Storyboard 30, and this is your host, Mark Fleischer. Full disclosure, I should mention that I was involved in the process with one of the very first public meetings in Raleigh, I think the fall of 2016, and I've been an advocate. And, you know, through Storyboard, I've been a, an advocate. So full disclosure, um, you know, I've been a supporter of the plan. But I want to talk about, John, what you mentioned, and then Rashawn gets your feedback as well, with regard to, you know, you mentioned what we're looking for as a community on a given corner or a street or a neighborhood, that wasn't, that didn't come out of the old school planning process, which was really a bunch of men sitting down and looking at maps and figuring out where do we want new development. Mm-hmm. This was, just like the trend nationwide, a concerted effort to make sure there was that, this, that the process started with community feedback. And I think that's another very important thing to mention because, you know, we know the numbers 15,000 plus Memphians par- participated in I don't know how many how many neighborhood sessions we had. Two, you know, the other part of this too is, you know, we have encountered, I say we as a as a community have encountered pushback from the preservation community and pushback from some of our disinvested communities thinking or interpreting the plan as this is going to enable developers, roughshod, to just go in and, and build, build, build. If only. If yeah. <laughs> so so one of the things that I've tried to emphasize in some of the things I've been mentioning or talking about in the paper and in other places is the fact that a big part of the plan is attempting to encourage reinvestment into the traditionally- Disinvested communities. It doesn't mean build, build, build. Rashawn, talk that, about that's what it, yeah, what does that. That's impossible for mean?
1: us to do. I, th- I think uh, sometimes people who um, live in disinvested communities, they're vulnerable in a lot of ways. And so, number one, they think that the city is a developer, and that's so not true. So, the city has a role to play in terms of this plan and public infrastructure. But really, as John has mentioned, developers have driven how we've grown. And so how we've grown our highways, what we've invested our CIP, they say, hey, there's a farm over there. It's a thousand acres. I like it. So we're going to build a subdivision there and now we're going to build 385 to get there. And so they've driven how we've grown. And what that's meant for us is complete four decades of disinvestment or more in some areas. And so they're not also not rushing back to those areas. I always tell people developing in the inner city, you're very altruistic or masochistic, (laughs) Some, some word like that, because it costs, it's very punitive to develop in disinvested neighborhoods. The financial institutions have clearly redlined those areas. And so we're not given money by government we have equity and debt investments. So, debt, people don't really think of that. So we got to pay that back. And so, and we're not making the returns that the developers have made traditionally in the subdivisions where they moved east. They can make the return. We don't even, our return is goodwill and affordable housing or some new development in a disinvested area. So, it's that's why we exist. Uh, Or or we could go into the private market and just make returns and not think about the people in the neighborhoods at the end of that. And so we're having to layer and heavily subsidize our developments to make them even work. And so there is no rush of private developers to do that. They're not in it to lose money. And that's what will be happening in these neighborhoods today. And what we have currently says, to me, it slaps me on my hand because I have to go. Before one of these boards to get a variance, because the lot sizes were from some other decade, they're from 1920s, and we had housing maybe for workers behind the Love Mansion on Seventh Street or the or former mayor Love's house. And those lot size we can't use today, so we can't build on that without asking for permission to build on that and paying a cost. For that permission. And we may or may not receive permission, and we don't have the dollars to take those type of risk, And so we're losing. We already don't have a return, can't make money because the appraised values are low. We can't get banks to lend in these disinvested neighborhoods. They've redlined them. They've drawn their maps. They may not have the maps anymore from the 30s, but in their heads, they have the maps. So we may spend a hundred thousand I always say one hundred and twenty thousand to build this twelve hundred square foot house. We can only get appraisals at forty or fifty thousand. who makes up that difference or that gap it's us, so we're subsidizing uh, to do development and we're we are charged for the subsidy
0: that's John <laughs> so, where you mentioned before risk right. and there's there's your risk right there. Why would I as a private developer you know make that kind of investment knowing without a plan, for example, that there's not going to be any more investment there. There's not going to be any investment in infrastructure. There's not going to be any more investment in services. That's something else, too, I think is really important to to note about the plan is that already, you know, back in January, February, whatever it was, Mayor Strickland, and looking at the plan um, and looking at some of the neighborhood anchors in some of these communities, disinvested communities, put together the Community Catalyst Fund. So, while the plan does not make direct investments, the plan encourages either low-risk investment or encourages the right kind of investment into some of the disinvested communities and these, you know, neighborhood anchors. So, for example, what are some of the neighborhood anchors that were identified by the Catalyst Community Catalyst Fund? I can't remember some of them, but. A good
2: example might be in Whitehaven, Elvis Presley, and Rains, that intersection uh, in in Raleigh, Austin P and Yale uh, mm-hmm. is another area that that we're looking at for those types of investments yeah
0: so back to the the plan itself and how it developed, we know that these areas need investment because of the community because of that community feedback that came out of all those listening sessions all those planning sessions, you know, we had community members sitting down at a table with, a, with flip charts, you know, identifying what they see are their assets in their community, mm-hmm. what they want for their community. A lot of it was, I'd like to be able to walk.
1: And I'd like to have somewhere to walk to. Mm-hmm. I'd <laughs> like to have somewhere to walk
0: to. I mean, it seems such like an idyllic thing to say, I want somewhere to walk. But you think about before there was the automobile, or before you know, 70 percent of the the population had an automobile. If you looked at the walkable communities that you, you you were able to walk to a grocery store, you were able to walk to a barber shop,
1: a dry cleaner if they had them, or laundry. Right. You were able to walk, yeah, to five, whatever you needed. The five butcher, or
0: t- five or ten minute walk, the florist, yeah, your church, your church. So when we talk about the catalyst fund. We talk about the plan. It really is trying to return to those types of neighborhoods so um, John, one of the things that came out of the plan is the the idea of these neighborhood anchors and I know that some some folks will look at well what what's an anchor mean and we, we really just identified it being able to walk
1: Through school it could be any institution
0: transportation has a, as a, a part in this too and I'm talking about mass transportation um, We've got about three minutes left for this segment mass transit plays into this as well. How how important is it when we look at the adoption of the plan that this plays into our future in terms of mass transit?
2: Well, I think it's very important. Its importance was elevated uh in the plan process itself. You mentioned that in you know from the very beginnings of the community uh input process that so many of the participants talked about the desire to uh, be able to walk to something within their community the desire to to see neighborhood businesses return to their community just as vocal were proponents of transit. having transit yeah. and having transit connectivity and particularly a of a reliable and efficient transit system <laughs> With
1: some frequency.
2: Right. People are locked in,
1: in neighborhood deserts without access to food and financial services and primary health care services, and it takes them an hour to I- imagine them in an emergency, uh, a need to get to one of those places. And so in a city with a 26% poverty rate, where many of our citizens are living at or below the poverty level they don't have access to re- reliable transportation in the form of their own personal vehicle. And so our privilege shows when we're only addressing people that have an automobile, they own a personal automobile, and they don't walk. And, and I, in a neighborhood I work mostly in in South Memphis, and I say mostly because I work in a lot of neighborhoods, we already know that a third of the residents or more don't own auto- automobile transportation. So they rely on as Uh, public transportation or their pedestrians and so we're ignoring them if we don't address transit
0: and you raise a good point too in terms of just we're talking about just basic needs yeah
1: that we all need
0: that we all need Yeah. yeah so in closing let's mention one more thing that the this goes to before um a vote tuesday uh july 2nd and the the vote is to is to uh adopt the plan uh this is the first reading so there will be a second and third reading all no in july and then also into august right so ideally if this if this does pass through council this will have approval in the first council session in august that's where we are now that's yep. where we are now i have i have a plan here that i want to talk about because one of the things we mentioned was um was Developers, Okay. And I have my own frustrations at times with developments that I see um, that um, um, that do not promote walkability Mm-mm. that uh, are clearly, again, catered toward automobile. And so we're looking at a, a, a plan that really represents a lot of the developments I'm seeing coming in throughout Midtown, actually more than just Midtown. And not, I'm not, we're not going to talk about where this is located oh, specifically. Oh, I was, because that was
1: like, I am have a seat. Okay.
0: <laughs> but um, it is, you know, it's a typical um, apartment complex um, that, that has, uh, yeah, has uh, really virtually nothing facing the street um, that I'm assuming is going to have parking either down the middle or down one of the sides or perhaps into the units themselves. And I'd, I I want to bring this up because that's one of the parts of the 3.0 plan is to hopefully encourage developers to think about promoting walkability for all the reasons we've already talked about, Right. So plans like the one we're, we're looking at here, which has, you know, nothing is facing the street. It kind of breaks all the rules when it comes to uh, eyes on the street, walkability. And this is in an area of town, in Midtown, where you could easily walk within two minutes. You can walk to just about anything, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So how do we how do we encourage, besides the plan itself, this is a difficult question probably but how do we encourage developers to think about walkability when they're at the you know at the drawing board and proposing a plan
1: I mean they're thinking about return on investment so we have to guide them into thinking about other things uh, and who they're trying to serve this. I'm not sure what this is. I thought it was a barn <laughs> or, or a storage not facility. The barn. A barn, like on a farm, and or, and or a storage facility. I did not know it was residential at all, uh, just looking at it. Um, and I'm thinking, well, so this is kind of the example. The, the staff probably recommended denying uh, the city council denying this, and they got around the recommendation of the staff, and it was approved. And so, because I'm like, how did you all let this happen? <laughs> so what is well, this <laughs>
0: barn? To, 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 to be fair, I think um, according to zoning, according to land use, it it it's it, 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 it checks all. Yeah, you know, all okay. the boxes are checked. Um, but if we had if we had the plan, the, the 3.0 plan as a guide. With this, this yeah, this would not be <laughs> consistent, I wouldn't think I would hope not right I, again, not talking about where this is but um but again i have i've, I've seen i've seen many of these, you know, mm-hmm. and um so john I, I part of the plan does hopefully address some of these things right.
2: Yes. Let let, let me pull back here uh, for a second. Um, I I, I know I have some long winded answers, but um, so one of the things that, um, you know, you mentioned a moment ago that uh, we've through this process uh, followed a lot of national best practices with respect to expanding our community involvement as much as possible well, I also think that we're we're setting uh some some trends of our own here uh, with respect to planning, and that is through the use of um what we in planning practice call community character uh, as a basis for thinking about land use um, so typically land use plans are very they're very mechanical they're very formulaic um, you know, an area might be designated as low-density residential, and those uh, that low density is defined by a table that gives you so many units per acre. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, um, you know, for a moderate density, there is a calculation of floor area ratio. Um, I'll let your listeners Google that on their own, rather than getting into it and wasting our time. Um, I think, suffice to say, uh, those are uh, very sort of technical terms that um, uh, leave a lot to interpretation, number one, but also don't really communicate what it is a community is trying to achieve with its land use plan. If we were just developing green, new raw greenfield land, um, that might be okay, but we're not. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about is planning for a city that is completely built out. And no matter what the decision is, no matter what the proposal is, there is an an existing community nearby or several existing communities nearby that are affected and impacted by this. Whether it's something as uh, innocuous as, you know, some whatever these are (laughs) or something substantial like, you know, an industrial development,
0: for example. Mm
2: hmm. So we looked at community character as a way of translating um, land use uh, in a language that's more understandable for the surrounding community, but more understandable to developers and more understandable to planners too, so that when there is someone who comes up with an idea like this and they say, I wanna build some, you said these are apartments. I wanna build some apartments in this residential neighborhood. Um, and obviously, I want to see, um, you know, a nice return on my investment and build in an area that uh, is a hot market today and uh, where I can make sure that my investment uh, is, is going to uh, turn a profit for me. But I've got to go into the planning office to figure out if this is what is desired. Well, rather than having a land use plan that says, well, uh Mr. Fleischer uh developer, you meet the uh the the density requirements of so many units per acre. So, you know, uh change approved. Um what we have now is a little bit more of uh, uh of a, a clearer set of guidelines and an illustrated set of guidelines to say While, yes, technically this is a two-story, you know, um, um, you know, townhouse development is accepted, Um, you know, it's clearly not in, you know, character with the neighborhood. Now, um, we're not necessarily saying no. What we're saying is let's work on how we make this better. Mm -hmm. Because right now we don't have, unless you're in a landmarks district, we don't have – a lot of design guidelines within our toolbox to say we require you to make this better what we have is a vision okay and so that's that's the beginning and that's an important beginning because we are taking that we are taking uh that concept of community character and first putting it into our land use vision and then next as we implement the plan over time and we are able to continue to raise the bar, we think about, okay, how does that affect what's in our code today and how can we raise the standard in our code? How does that affect our design guidelines where we do have design guidelines applied to certain areas, whether that's through a historic overlay or another overlay district? So this gives us a new uh, set of tools to be thinking about how uh, we get development that meets our character, uh, but ultimately it's, it's a series of steps uh, that uh, allows us to be able to raise the bar. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, critics will will pick on this and say, how was how this, you know, I've heard the term rubber-stamped. How is this rubber-stamped, this, kind of, this kind of development? And it's because in many areas of town we don't have any guidelines, you know, it's not it's not a uh, it's not a landmark district like you mentioned. There there aren't any guidelines, and this particular development is surrounded by similar structures or st- similar apartment buildings that were built in the '60s, '70s, when this kind of development would have been standard, right? So, the, and the, so
2: chances are it may be, even meet the zoning. And right. It didn't even have to
0: come for mm-hmm. an approval. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah um
1: they perhaps so, had just a little more character.
0: Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, so. the 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 interesting the, the, the interesting downside of this is that uh when you look at the, you know, you're talking about return on investment for a developer, right? You look at the long term, this is going to end up being perhaps, depending on what happens in this part of Midtown, um this could end up being a blighted property in 15 years.
1: Well, that's past the, their right. time of their right. return. So they've gotten what they wanted out of it. They, they You know, uh, we were talking about with the staff some absorption rate earlier, and so they say this type of building absorbs over a two- or three-year period. We'll uh, look at our operating perform over the next decade. We'll get everything we want out of it. Then we don't care. We don't care whoever gets in next. We'll sell. We'll get in. We'll get out. Make our money, and, and that's, that's we we'll un- sell.
0: Yeah, and that's unfortunate, really, when when you know developers are looking into the short term, which is you know often the case.
1: That's most developers. You only have developers like us who are in it long term, who sign up to be restricted for additional years. You know, we build an affordable housing development. Our compliance period ends in fifteen years. And we say, hey, state, we'd like to sign up for an additional 20 years to maintain affordability. They didn't ask us to sign up, and it's not a requirement. We want to maintain that for people who are still living at or below the poverty level. And so, you know, that's been kind of my issue with critics because they don't understand the type of development that, I'm engaged in. It's like I signed up to be punished, and I signed up for some more years for the punishment because I'm trying to serve a certain population of people. Yeah. Um,
0: and I we should remind listeners too with with Rashawn what you do with the works is, is is you're working mostly in the South Memphis communities,
1: in distressed neighborhoods, and so you know most of our work started out in South Memphis, but we're building. Or helping homeowners in North Memphis, and we're building multifamily affordable housing in Frazier. Yeah, and so,
0: so for for your for the works for the for the work that you're doing, uh, what does three mean to you and those communities? Do you think?
1: Well, I, I've already I kind of mentioned that yeah. you know. It takes away some of the punishment <laughs> that we experience. we like, we're the good kid. Why do we keep getting spankings? Uh, <laughs> cause, or we get charged mm-hmm. to be good kids. So it's $1,000 here, Rashawn, or $1,000 there. We're going to make it, uh, it way more difficult, make you go through an obstacle course to do good work mm-hmm. uh, for people that need it most. Yeah. And so it it that consistency word is important to me. So I'm not trying to often go for a variance that's a bad thing. Usually I'm going for a variance because I'm in an old neighborhood that hasn't seen investment and it's not these, this farmland subdivision that has these big lots for single family detached. I'm trying to do housing that fits in a more dense, older area in the city. Right. And so it stop it well, stops some of that punishment that I'm experiencing.
2: And getting back to the topic of infrastructure, you know the the prior plan the Memphis 2000 w- the way that it encouraged suburban growth was by setting its as one of its primary recommendations the extension of urban level infrastructure further and further away from the city's core mm-hmm. and and that was the that was the primary growth recommendation uh, of the plan, and, and infrastructure being such a key element of how they were able to implement that plan. As Rashan said, the city is not a developer, uh, and as we've noted here extensively, um, real estate development is a private enterprise, and we, the city, can't dictate go here or there, we can guide. And one of the ways we guide is infrastructure.
1: CIP budget.
2: And so (laughs) in thinking, you know, you mentioned Community Catalyst Fund uh, a moment ago. CIP is another good example.
0: CIP stands for?
2: Capital Improvement Program. Um, But ultimately, the plan not only helps to make, make decisions around uh, consistency in land use decisions, but it helps to shape a direction for how infrastructure is provisioned over 20 years that ultimately helps developers, whether they be for-profit or non-profit, to be able to see if this is, if, if, if I want to get some help with hooking up to sewer or uh, making sure that that, you know, there's adequate uh, transportation capacity or, uh, you know, making sure that I have a pedestrian-friendly environment, um, the infrastructure side of the house is where, th- is where the city encourages that development. Uh, and, you know, having a land use plan to guide those decisions, again, provides another, uh, another dimension of transparency to the community about where the we're looking to see density take place. We're looking to see new growth and development take place. And, and that's not to say that uh, areas that aren't designated for new growth wouldn't see infrastructure spending, uh, but in terms of how dollars are spent to support new density and new growth, uh, it, it, it goes a very long way to have a clear and, uh, and transparent plan that sets that guide.
0: Yeah, and I think that's when we talk about infrastructure and the, and the Catalyst Fund. You know what I think is forgotten in some of these discussions is the fact that that means very simple, tangible things like um, sidewalk improvement, um, street lighting, um,
1: probably street lighting and sewer and streets. The sidewalk improvement is it's the developer's responsibility, yeah. and people think it's yeah, the city's. <laughs> They've forget. taken it on, but yeah, it's really the developer. That. Yeah, and so, yeah. Um, but you know, just thinking about sewer, if we have crumbling infrastructure in the sewer, I got to tap into that when I build right. in the inner city. So, what if there need to be repairs on the city side, but there's not enough money to do that because we've spent our CIP dollars. Going east, where developers have are able to make down that corridor, the popular corridor, where they're able to make the the relevant returns, and I still need sewer to hook up to my building, uh, yeah, my commercial building, my retail space, my residential, my multifamily residential, but I got to do a, a little more work. So that's that punitive part. We got to pay more because you haven't invested in this. In 40 years, and I got to go back and forth with the public utility. And it's not that they're being mean to me necessarily, there's just been no investment in it. It requires more work.
0: Yeah, yeah. We've got about 10 minutes. Um, and I want to ask a couple difficult questions. And because th- this pops up when we talk about a, a city plan and we see $15 billion of investment coming and we see, you know, 75 to 100 you know, developments popping up over the next five years in the core city. We're talking, you know, like from downtown to South Main, the Pinch, Edge District, and the word gentrification comes up, right? How does, in your collective opinions individually, um, how, how do we allay those fears? In other words, what would you say to those that say, well, this is, this is gentrification, it's racism. It's these things. And we are trying to push, you know, the African-American community out. I mean, what would you say to those kind of, those critics who say this is this is all this is gentrification? This so is all it is.
1: perhaps it is making it better, which is gentrification. I think the concern uh, is we, you know, and often they go hand in hand, gentrification and displacement. And so who we elect is important in this election year because legislators have an ability that I don't personally have. They can (laughs) set things in place to allay some of those fears through, um, I don't know if it's ordinances or what, around restrictive covenants and deeds that uh, think about those vulnerable populations in advance. Uh, As a developer, I do it, but I can't make all developers do that. They don't have those requirements on them by some legislative authority. Like if the state or the city council or the county commission says, you have to do this, have so many units set aside for certain populations of people, or if people already live here, you cannot displace them. Even if it's, we think about residential displacement, but I think about small businesses, the mom and pops. And so they're Efforts around the country where developers are working with their legislative bodies to put things in place to restrict it's it's kind of New York's old rent control that's not the best example because uh, they didn't do a great job over time with that, but legislators change um so I think at the state and local level we can put things in place to protect populations of people uh and allay those fears because they're they're real
0: yeah yeah um. Rashawn, you serve on the uh, Neighborhood Preservation Inc. board and also on the uh, ULI Urban Land Institute of uh, local Memphis chapter. Uh, you might as well, as well throw community. in
1: Blight Authority of Memphis, and so I'm obviously right. yeah. a nerd around <laughs> investment in land use.
0: Yeah, well, because you <laughs> talked about covenant <laughs> deeds, for example, and 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 also, you know, inevitably, like one of the conversations we want to have for example, with MPI at some point, is to talk about the challenges we have with wills or lack thereof. We
1: we, we hosted a a title and will workshop and clinic, rather, with the Neighborhood Preservation Clinic of the University of Memphis Law School. We didn't have a lot of takers, but in the type of work we're doing, we're encountering that every day where uh, parents may have been well-intentioned, but they didn't do a will to leave those properties properly to their heirs or their heirs had no interest. In, and so we can't close deals in the inner city, whether it's a new homeowner trying to get in a house, buy a house in the inner city, or we're just trying to buy a piece of land because of cloudy title, And so that is some some of the work. We're talking to the national title companies, but they can't solve it because in America, you know, Property ownership is part of our foundation, uh, private ownership of property, uh, at least for certain people. (laughs) We just got there in the 20th century where other people could own land, but we can't just go and take people's land. As much as they think the government just goes out and takes land, uh, that's not what governments do, and individual developers can't go out and take your land. We got to, if we want it and it's got a cloudy title, we got to pay a few thousand to clear that title. We just can't own your land because we want it, or people be doing that every day.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and, and I think it seems like to me that some of the fears in some communities are based right there, mm-hmm. that, oh, here comes 3.0, here comes all this development, and I don't know that I have title on this house that was my grandfather's I don't
1: even know with... if they're thinking that deeply, yeah. Mark. I, I, I said it before the council, you know, for blacks, that's it's 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 real. You know, and it's in in I. I knew my grandmother uh, all my life until a few years ago when she passed away. And so, in her lifetime, I said blacks in in the South, in particular, were subjected to either federal policy. Academicians sat in their Ivy towers and they gave information to government officials and said we should do urban renewal. So that's true in our lifetime. That's twentieth century. Or they or people who were bad people had did terroristic acts. So they took land that people had gotten after the Civil War through land deeds in Mississippi. And so I know those people that the land was taken from. And so I understand the fears. How do we allay that? 3.0 is not urban renewal. 3.0 is not a terroristic act by the Ku Klux Klan or some other terrorist group. It is a, a guide. It's actually, it should be protective of those vulnerable populations, uh, not like those other plants that took interstates and ran them through communities. Uh, we, we're trying to be thoughtful. We're trying to serve vulnerable populations and invest in areas where they already live or they want to return.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and John, I'll pose this question to you Uh with the you know the the preservation community, there's concerns about well, this is going to overlay the landmarks zoning districts, um, and you know it's we, not it's not, we yeah. not that I, I served on I served <laughs>
1: yeah. on landmarks,
0: yeah. so w- yeah, and because. You know, here I, I'm, as I said, I've, you know, served as an advocate and I'm trying to play devil's advocate as I, as much as I can here. And, and that is one of the, you know, one of the criticisms or concerns or that, is, that has popped up as, well, you know what? Watch out for your historic district, you know, or watch out for uh, the districts that are trying to become, you know, historic districts and, and get the historic zoning uh, in place. But, um and so, yeah, we could just simply say it's not. You know, it doesn't.
2: It's not, and and I understand. I mean, there, there certainly were concerns that, uh, or just a perception that uh, a new uh, a new plan could potentially wash away some of the things that had already be had already been set uh, as guidelines or set as um, you know. Uh, Approved districts, that sort of thing, and and that's simply not the case. I mean, uh, land use and zoning are two different things. Land use is the guide; it's the vision, um, and zoning is the rules. And so, for the uh, for the you know preservation side of things, the rules here locally are uh, local landmarks districts that have guidelines that govern um, the various elements of construction within. Uh, within those districts. And so a a plan does not at all take away from the rules. Um, It is perhaps even, one could argue, complementary to the degree that, um, you know, those rules are in place and anyone who wants to uh, build uh, within one of those districts has to comply with the rules. Um, But if they did have to uh, get a zoning fix if there was something else that, um, you know, that was uh, an issue in the UDC and they had to go uh, before the the land use control board or city council. Uh, the advocates for the neighborhood, not only do they have their guidelines and the sort of uh, shot at making sure that, that uh, the developer is meeting the guidelines before the Landmarks Commission, but they have the tool of the plan to say, you know one of the things that that this plan is uh is aiming to achieve is to further um, the community character around us and uh we you know through this plan uh advocate for seeing that community character uh, enhanced or preserved and uh so so there's an opportunity i think uh for for preservationists to see uh not only Uh, their place in the plan, but the strength of the plan to support uh, what they already support through their own guidelines, which, Mm -hmm. again, is not uh, stripped away, not watered down, not, um, you know, uh, otherwise uh, muted by having a plan. Yeah,
1: it it, it speaks to that character, the consistency in the character. Um, You know, it made me think of what landmarks, because I served on landmarks before, is you will keep your detached garages and your gingerbread. <laughs> <laughs> right right right,
0: so. right and 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 it, um likewise you know communities that have been approved for for um uh for tips um um tax increment, financing. increment financing yeah mm-hmm. uh, same thing applies there so university district um you know uh, uh north um north maine and the pinch the, you know those tips for example still apply mm-hmm. and the plans put in place for those still apply
1: yeah the plan doesn't have nearly as much power as people it cannot snatch away your tiff
0: yeah
1: and and then take your property nor your detached garage or gingerbread Mm -hmm. right and it cannot gentrify your neighborhood because it does not build it is not a developer
0: right right um last question um what if council doesn't adopt
2: well, if council doesn't adopt, the technical answer to your question is that uh, they are uh, not required to follow the plan for consistency in their land use decisions. Yeah, specifically
0: uh, land use decisions. That's so, right. so yeah, and okay. Yeah.
2: It, it it is the the uh, as I said before, by virtue of uh, adoption by the land use control board. Uh, It is our city's comprehensive plan, and it is our city's first comprehensive plan in nearly 40 years. And by that fact alone and by the fact that we have – that so many people have been involved in getting us to that point, I think we need to be very excited and proud that we have a plan for our future of the city. Um, If – the city council doesn't use it for land use decisions guess what we're still going to be making recommendations with respect to consistency with our comprehensive plan
1: yeah Yeah. and developers will continue to develop where they have a return and it's not so hard to develop and we'll continue to have the same disinvested neighborhoods that we have today
0: well once again Rashawn austin um john zena thank you again for coming in and uh being here on storyboard 30 and thank you again to Jeff Hewlett and his fine acoustic guitar work to producer Steve Uzzery, who's sitting in today for Vance Durbin and to WIPL program manager, Tommy Warren to WIPL and the Memphis public libraries for their support to listeners and supporters of the library and FMN 89.3 for more information on, if you want to look up uh, Memphis 3.0, you can go to the website, Memphis, the number three, the word point and the number zero.com. dot um, and the city council meeting again the first hearing for the first reading is July 2nd at 3.30 at uh, City Hall 125 North Main we hope you join us next time on Storyboard 30 for more conversation with those Memphis personalities and shapers who make our lives here in the Bluff City just a little bit better, Memphis make it a great week